welcome back to Sad Girl Study Guides. As always, I'm your host, Amelia, and as always, I'm sad. It's currently pouring rain in Chicago. It's raining so hard, you can hear it even in my tiny little podcast closet. I don't mind that much. I think rain's actually appropriate as we continue to discuss the British romantics. I'll do my best, though, to edit it out post-production, but if you hear any thunder in this episode, that is why. In this episode, I am going to be wrapping up the British romantics for now. Who knows, I might swing back around to them someday because I'm so complex like that. I'm going to be ending the British romantics on a high note, as well as chronologically, with John Keats, the most tragic of tragic bays. If you learned about John Keats in high school, he most certainly was that guy who wrote all of those odes. But John Keats did more than just write a bunch of odes. Even though he only lived for 25 years, his life is absolutely jam-packed. His study guide includes a failed medical career, Kentucky, some anchovies, and a lot of tuberculosis. Let's begin. John Keats was most likely born on October 31st, a.k.a. Halloween, 1795, in London. The actual date of John Keats's birth is a little bit unclear. He may have been born on October 29th or October 31st. We don't know for sure, but he was definitely entered into the local church records on October 31st. Either way, he was a preemie. He was born about two months early. So the, so the fact that he survived childbirth is astounding. Point one for John Keats. Keats's parents were Francis Jennings and Thomas Keats. His father grew up poor and had to live in a workhouse for a bit. He eventually became a stableman for the Swan and Hoop stables. His mother, Frances Jennings, was the daughter of the owner of the Swan and Hoop stables. And through that, Frances and Thomas met and eventually got married in October 1794. As a result of this, the family lived at the Swan and Hoop stables for most of Keats's childhood. They were definitely living there full time by the time Keats was around seven years old. Keats was the oldest of the Keats children. He had two younger brothers who survived childhood, George and Thomas, and a younger sister, Fanny Keats. Keats's father, Thomas Keats, started to get into some legal troubles throughout Keats's childhood. In 1803, a man named Robert Matthews conned Thomas Keats out of a horse. Robert Matthews said that he was a soldier, he needed the horse, and then he never actually returned said horse. Thomas Keats had you then go to court over the entire thing. He wins the court case, and Robert Matthews ends up getting sent to Australia as a convict as a result of the whole thing. While all this is going on, John Keats gets sent to school. He gets sent to Clark's Academy, which is a small boarding school in the Enfield neighborhood of northeastern London. 
Keats is sent to Clark's Academy because his parents can't afford one of the fancier private schools like Eton or Harrow. And while Clark's Academy isn't super fancy, it's still not a bad school. The headmaster of Clark's Academy, John Clark, tends to be much more liberal than the headmasters of places like Eton or Harrow. He's really going to be focusing on classics in history in his students' education. As a result, Keats is going to learn about math, gardening, biology, astronomy, and the Renaissance. His education is going to be much more broad than the education of his contemporaries like Shelley and Byron. And John Keats is going to do pretty well at Clark Academy. He's a decent student, and when he does get in trouble, it's not over academics, but instead because he has this bad habit at yelling at teachers who get annoyed with his younger siblings. While Keats is at Clark Academy, he becomes really, really good friends with the headmaster's son, Charles Cowden Clark, and this friendship is going to be really important in John Keats's later life. But all this is going to change because in April 1804, John Keats's father dies. Basically, Thomas Keats had been visiting John and his younger brother George at school, and on the way back home, he falls off of a horse, gets a skull fracture, and dies. Tragically, Thomas Keats dies without a valid will, which puts the entire Keats family in a bit of an uncertain position, which really should remind us of what happens to William Wordsworth. To make matters even more complicated, Thomas Keats dies without a lot of money. He dies with only about 2,000 pounds, which isn't enough money to pay for all of the Keats children's school's fees, to pay for rent for the family, etc., etc. In order to keep the family afloat, the youngest Keats brother, who is also named Thomas, and the Keats daughter, Fanny, are sent to live with their grandparents, the Jennings, and John and his other brother, George, are kept at Clark Academy. Very soon after their father dies, their mother, Frances, unexpectedly gets married to a much younger man, William Rawlings. And William Rawlings, tragically, is kind of bad news. He says he's a bank clerk, but that's uncertain. He's kind of sketchy, kind of a bit of a con man. And this sudden unexpected marriage really upsets John Keats's grandparents, who start to shun Francis. About a year after John's father dies, his grandfather dies. And his grandfather has a decent amount of money. But he leaves most of the money to John's grandmother and John's uncle. John's mother is very upset about this. She was expecting to inherit a pretty sizable amount of the grandfather's money. So she sues the family and it goes to court. And we start to see tension building between John's mother and John's grandmother. During the middle of this court case, John's mother's second husband leaves her and the rest of the family, including John and his brother, move in with 
the grandmother. While all this is going on, John and his brother George are still in school. The younger siblings are still living with the grandmother, but we're still seeing this building family tension. Then in 1810, John's mother dies of tuberculosis. She had been sick for a while. Her health had never been great, which leads to contemporaries and historians alike thinking that she maybe had had some sort of sexually transmitted disease. There's no hard proof of that, but that might have caused her sickliness even before the tuberculosis had really set in. The death of John Keats's mother completely devastates him. He tried to nurse her back to health on his own, even though he was fully in school at the time, and he gets really possessive over his mother. He doesn't let anyone else give her medicine. He tries to send the other doctors away, but none of it works. John Keats's mother dies by the time John is 14. And with her death... John and all of his siblings are orphans, but luckily for them, they are not cast out into the street because they still have their grandmother. And with their mother out of the way, most of the family tensions do get resolved. They're able to get money from their grandfather, and their grandmother sets up a pretty sizable trust for each of the children. Each child is set to inherit about 2,000 pounds, which is a little bit under $200,000 in two days' money. So that's not too shabby. To further provide for the future of the Keats family, their grandmother sets up guardianships for each of the children. The guardians of the Keats children are going to be these two men, John Sandal and Richard Abbey. However, the Keats children are going to have a really rough relationship with their guardians in the future, especially with Richard Abbey, and they're never actually going to find out about the $2,000 trust that their grandmother had set up for them because the family lawyer, William Walton, never tells the children about the trust, which in my opinion is more than a little bit sketchy. Once again, I'm very much reminded of what happened to William Wordsworth and his siblings. So all that is being set up for the Keats children, but it never quite manages to get carried out. The same year that John Keats's mother dies, in 1810, when he's 14 years old, John Keats leaves school. I know 14 sounds like a really early age to leave school, but he had graduated, he had completed his education, and he had done pretty well. By the time John Keats leaves Clark Academy, he had won an award for translating the Aeneid into English. He had a really great relationship with both the headmaster and the headmaster's son. Things are going really well for John Keats. He gets an apprenticeship to work for a local doctor, Thomas Hammond, and it looks like things are going to go great. He does have some interest in science, and the Hammond family is like, yes, come live with us. We will pay for your room and board. Things are on the up and up for John Keats, except that they're not. Thomas Hammond treats John Keats 
like a servant, and pretty quickly John Keats is like, yeah, no, turns out this whole apprenticeship thing isn't for me. And as a result, John Keats dips out of his apprenticeship on the early side, which technically is frowned upon. Meanwhile, the Keats guardians, John Sandal and Richard Abbey, have found jobs for the younger Keats boys, George and Tom. Both of them are working for Richard Abbey in his tea firm, and Tom Keats in particular absolutely hates the work. He finds it amazingly boring. As it turns out, both Tom Keats and John Keats aren't really all that into more practical STEMI jobs. While all this is going on, Fanny Keats is staying with her grandmother, just being like a good girl, learning household skills. During all of this, the whole leaving the apprenticeship thing, John manages to stay in contact with his friend from school, Cowden Clark, who is seriously introducing him to poetry. Cowden Clark pushes Keats to keep working on his Latin translations of Virgil, and Keats does this. He also starts reading Milton, and he begins getting really inspired by epic poetry. And as a result of the reading that he's doing, it's around this time in 1814 that he starts writing his first original poems. The next summer, in 1815, through his brother George, John Keats meets the Matthews family. The Matthews family are part of this circle of artists and writers that are hanging out in London. Through the Matthews, John Keats is going to meet Richard Woodhouse, a lawyer who is going to be one of his biggest friends, promoters, and patrons, and he's also going to meet their cousin George Felton Matthews, who's a poet, and the artist Joseph Severn, who's going to be one of Keats's biggest friends for the rest of his life. He's also going to meet Mary Frogley through them, and he's going to write Mary Frogley a ton of love poems. The same year, 1815, John Keats is formally going to become a medical student at Guy's Hospital in London. Even before 1815, John Keats almost certainly was informally taking classes at Guy's Hospital in London. He really quickly gets a position helping surgeons at the hospital, which shows that John Keats did have some medical skills. It was a really big deal for a student to get this job helping surgeons. And to me, this shows that John Keats did have some potential as a medical student, even though he hated the whole medical side of things, and he did end up ditching the whole medical career, he could have maybe had a go at it, which shows a really interesting what-if side to Keats's life. During his time as a medical student, he starts writing one of his major poems called On Solitude. And while he's working on On Solitude, he becomes ambivalent about the whole becoming a doctor thing. He starts worrying that he's going to have to make a choice between being a doctor and writing. And as he's studying medicine, he decides that writing is going to be an antidote to being a doctor. It's an either or to him. He can't be both, which is interesting when you think about 
other poets who managed to combine careers in science with poetry, like famously William Carlos Williams. In the spring of 1816, Keats finishes To Solitude, and it gets published in the newspaper of this romantic poet, Lee Hunt. This is a huge deal for John Keats. Lee Hunt is a really well-known romantic poet. He's friends with Percy Shelley and Lord Byron. He's famous for getting sent to prison for his radical political beliefs. And he's a huge inspiration to John Keats. By getting one of his poems published in Lee Hunt's newspaper, this is a sign to John Keats that he has potential as a poet. And right when his poem, To Solitude, gets published, John Keats also passes his apothecary exams. This means that he can practice medicine. So now he really does have to make this decision. Is he going to go more in this practical doctor path, or is he going to go more in the poetry path? But John Keats is not going to make the decision just yet. Instead, he spends his summer hanging out by the sea with his BFF, Cowden Clark, writing a ton. That fall, October 1816, Cowden Clark introduces him to Lee Hunt. Cowden Clark was like, hey, you should write Lee Hunt a poem. And John Keats does. And Lee Clark is like, oh yeah, you're really talented. Let's meet. And they do meet. And this meeting goes super super well. And after the meeting, John Keats writes this poem called On the First Looking into Chapman's Homer, and Lee Hunt publishes the poem, and the poem gets rave reviews. And everyone's like, oh my gosh, this John Keats kid, he is amazingly talented. And pretty soon, John Keats is sort of getting talked about as one of the members of this new school of young, talented poets. And John Keats is like, oh fuck, maybe I could make this poetry thing happen. So in November 1816, he moves into an apartment in London with both of his brothers and starts preparing to print his first book of poems. He's writing, he's editing, he's putting off the whole becoming a doctor thing. In March 1817, he publishes his first collection of poems, and he decides to use the same publishers as Percy Shelley, because after all, Percy Shelley is also friends with Lee Hunt, Percy Shelley is also part of this new school of poets, why not use the same publishers as him? It's going to go great. And right before publishing this first book of poems, he officially decides that, yeah, he's not going to be a doctor after all. He's going to be a poet full-time, which makes his guardians super pissed off because being a poet is not exactly the best way to make a living either in 1817 or now in 2019. And he also decides to lend his friends and his brothers quite a bit of money. And then John Keats sits back and waits for the reviews. And the reviews aren't super great. Yes, all of his friends love his poems, but the main 
critics are like, yeah, this John Keats guy has no education. We shouldn't take him seriously at all. And John Keats is like, oh, maybe I've made a slight mistake. And would you look at that? I've lent money to a bunch of people. I'm kind of short on cash, which shockingly is going to be a bit of a theme for the rest of John Keats's pretty short life. But John Keats doesn't let that stop him. He starts working on a new longer poem, Endymion, which is based on a Greek myth of a shepherd who the moon falls in love with. He gets a lot of inspiration from a trip through England that he takes in the spring of 1817. He decides that he's going to write this epic poem all in one go, and he spends a ton of time each day working on it, and he just writes and writes and writes for the entire year and finishes this epic poem by November. It ends up being very long, but even so, he's not quite happy with his output. He feels like he didn't quite meet his output goals, which, yes, he didn't, but in fairness to John Keats, he set himself absolutely absurd output goals. He wanted to write a 4,000-line poem in less than six months, which is crazy. Like, no one can do that. And while he's writing Endymion, John Keats meets Isabella Jones, who's part of the same intellectual and social circle. John Keats is amazingly in to Isabella Jones, and the two probably have sex. He probably loses his virginity to her. But then by 1818, she vanishes from the story. We just don't know what happened to Isabella Jones because John Keats stops writing about her and she's a woman in the early 1800s. So historically, why should we care about her? By the spring of 1817, Keats moves from London to Hampstead with his two brothers. Keats's youngest brother, Thomas, is really, really sick with tuberculosis. Because when you look at that, tuberculosis runs in the Keats family. Keats and his brother, George, do their best to nurse him back to health, just the two of them. Because remember, John Keats kind of went to medical school. He totally knows what he's doing. And it's not like there is no cure for tuberculosis in the early 1800s. By now, John Keats himself is getting pretty sick. It may have been syphilis. It may have been the early stages of his own tuberculosis. Because remember, tuberculosis can travel in the air. So if you're in really close contact with, say, a brother with tuberculosis and he coughs and the droplets get in your mouth, you too could get tuberculosis. But we don't know exactly what John Keats had at this point in time. While he and his siblings are living in Hampstead at this point in time, Keats does meet Wordsworth and Coleridge, so it's not all hideousness. The year of 1818 starts out not all terribly. Tom Keats gets a little bit better. In April, John Keats publishes Endymion, and in May, George Keats marries his love interest, Georgiana Weil. But right after getting married, George and Georgiana move from England to Kentucky, where they set up their own 
Society of Intellectuals, which is really cool and interesting and a whole other story of itself. To celebrate their move, Keats writes Georgiana, a little acrostic poem in her honor, which is a really sweet little wedding gift. I'm never going to get married, but if I were to get married, I would love to have one of the most famous poets of all time write me an acrostic. Throughout the summer, Keats, who is doing better, does a walking tour of England and Scotland and really enjoys it. But the end of the summer, things start going badly. Reviews of Endymion's come out, and most of them are terrible. Most of the critiques of Keats' work are based on his lack of education and the fact that he wasn't from a wealthy family, which is pretty shitty. Keats can't help his education, and even though he didn't have, like, a really fancy, like, university education, his poetry is still pretty good. So stop being so judgy, critics. Also, by August, the health of his youngest brother, Tom, really starts going downhill, and on December 1st, 1818, Tom Keats dies, which is just completely devastating for Keats. He can't really deal with it. After Tom's death, he moves to Wentworth House in Hampstead Heath with his really close friend, Charles Armitage Brown. He's completely devastated by Tom's death. He's not working. He's deeply in debt. The only way he's able to pay basic living expenses is by borrowing money from his guardian, which he doesn't enjoy doing. It's kind of a slap in the face for him. By the spring, he's able to pull himself together a little bit more. He publishes his famous odes, which I will talk about later. And once again, these just aren't well received, which once again really hurts Keats. And as always, it's the criticism over his lack of a formal education, as well as fun new criticism based on the diction he's using and the fact that he's being relatively informal in his writing. Throughout 1819, Keats is going to be working on some new works. Some of his most famous works are written during this time, such as La Belle Dame Sans Merci and Hyperion. He never finishes the last one. One good thing does happen at the end of 1818 and early 1819. He meets Francis Fanny Braun. Fanny Braun comes from a family of innkeepers, all of whom die of tuberculosis, because, I mean, what else are you going to die of in the early 1800s? Fanny Braun has a reputation for being an excellent dressmaker and for being funny and witty. In April 1819, she moves right next door to Keats, and the two hit it off and start seeing each other every day. Keats starts lending her books, the two start chatting about books, and they just become really really close. Keats gives her the poem, Bright Star, in her honor. And we don't know exactly if the relationship between the two ever was consummated, but the letters between them are really, really racy, and the relationship between Keats and Fanny really is the big love story of John Keats's life. And after Keats dies, Fanny will mourn him 
for six years, although she will ultimately marry another man in 1833 because a girl's gotta do what a girl's gotta do. So he's flirting with Fanny, he's writing poems, and in 1820 he publishes the final volume that he will publish during his lifetime. This volume includes poems like Lamia and the Eva St. Agnes, and it's slightly better reviewed than his other works. By 1820, John Keats is showing some pretty serious signs of tuberculosis. He had almost certainly gotten it by 1819, if not before. By February 1820, his lungs are starting to hemorrhage, which is never a good sign. So he moves to Italy. The idea is that the climate in Italy is a bit more mild than England's climate, so it'll be better for his health. And he moves to Italy with his friend Joseph Severin, so he won't have to go it alone. It takes Joseph and John Keats a while to get to Italy because along the way there's a storm and then there's this long calm period so their ship is kind of stuck and then once they're at Italy they have to wait for this quarantine thanks to a nice little cholera outbreak in Naples so the two don't actually arrive in Rome until November 1820. Once they're actually in Rome the two live in a house by the Spanish steps. The doctor in Rome says that his tuberculosis comes from a place of mental exertion and is really based on his stomach, not his lungs at all. And hopefully in 2019, we can recognize that for the utter bullshit that it is. Keats's doctor puts him on a strict diet of toast and anchovies, aka John Keats gets to eat a single piece of toast a day, which hopefully we can all recognize is also bullshit. And Keats also starts taking large amounts of opium to deal with the pain. He wants to take more opium than the doctor or Severin will give him because he's in a lot of pain, which frankly I think is fair. By the end of the year, John Keats knows that he's dying. And he feels like he hasn't done enough of his life and that if he had had more time, he would have written more, and the writing he would have done would have been better received. And I just, this is the bit of Keats's story that I find so sad. He was so young. He wanted to do so much more, and he couldn't, and it wasn't his fault. He was sick, and probably the way he got sick was by trying to save his brother's life, and now he's dying, and there's nothing he could do about it. By mid-December 1820, John Keats is coughing up blood on the regular. He's dying. No one can save him. And John Keats dies on February 23rd, 1821. He's only 25 when he dies. At the time of his death, he had only been writing poems for six years, and his work had only been published for four years. And the work that had been published had been terribly received. John Keats is buried in the Protestant cemetery in Rome and his grave read, this grave contains all that was mortal of a young English poet who on his deathbed, in the bitterness of his heart, at the malicious power of his enemies, desired these words to be engraven on his tombstone. Here lies this one whose name was writ in water. 24th February, 
1821. After his death, it took almost a month for news of his death to reach his friends like Fanny Braun in England. Once he died, Percy Shelley wrote this really beautiful poem, Adonis, in his honor. It wasn't until about 1848 that John Keats started becoming well-regarded. That's when the first biography of him was written, and that's sort of when he was placed within the canon of English literature. Sort of once that happened, John Keats's popularity really took off. He was really popular with the Victorians. Alfred Lord Tennyson loved him. So did members of the pre-Ralphalite Brotherhood, like Millet and Rossetti. And nowadays, obviously, he is super, super popular and really well-regarded and super influential, which I personally think he deserves. And as an interesting, like, side note, Amy Lowell, a poet who won a Pulitzer Prize and who is related to Robert Lowell, who's also a very famous poet, and she's one of my favorite poets, has a massive collection of Keats memorabilia. I'm not quite sure why she, of all people, had such a large collection, but I thought that was really, really interesting. So, for those study guiders who prefer bullet points to full lectures, let's do a quick little recap of John Keats's very short but very jam-packed life. John Keats came from a solidly middle-class family. His father was a stableman, and his mother was the daughter of his father's employer. John Keats was the oldest of four surviving children, and he was educated at the Clark's Academy boarding school, which was a good boarding school, but it wasn't quite as fancy as, say, Eton or Harrow. But it did give him a very well-rounded education, and he got along very well with both the headmaster and the headmaster's son. However, his childhood was complicated when his father died unexpectedly in 1804 without a valid will. His father's death led to conflict and tension within the family. There was legal wrangling over the will, and then Keats's mother got married a second time, which led to even more tension, which lasted between mm, 1804 to 1810 when his mother died, which meant that guardianship of the children passed to Keats's grandmother, who set up a pretty substantial trust to each of the children. However, no one actually told the Keats children that said trust existed, which caused conflict down the line. The same year, John Keats left school and started working for a local doctor. Keats hated this doctor and ditched the apprenticeship pretty soon after. He decided to go to medical school instead and seemed to do pretty well at it all things considered. But Keats also realized that what he really loved wasn't medicine, but poetry, thanks to a schoolhood friendship with the son of his headmaster, who really pushed him to write poetry. And he did. Through his brother George, Keats got introduced to this artistic circle, which also pushed him to keep writing poetry. By 1816, Keats was sending his poems to well-known romantic poet Lee Hunt, who started publishing them. And by 1817, Keats had dropped out of medical school and decided to pursue poetry full 
time, which was a great life choice, except the fact that his poems, while interesting, weren't necessarily super well received. But Keats didn't let that stop him. He kept writing. But then his youngest brother, Thomas, died of tuberculosis, and in treating Thomas, Keats almost certainly caught the disease himself. Keats didn't let that stop him. He kept writing, kept publishing, kept getting terrible reviews. In 1818, he met the love of his life, Fanny Braun. They had a really close, almost certainly chaste relationship, and Keats wrote some really beautiful poetry to her. In 1820, Keats really, really, really got badly hit by tuberculosis and left England for Italy, where he died of TB in February 1821 at the age of 25. Despite his young death, he had a really incredible output, even though no one recognized his genius until mm, over two decades later in 1848. So, that is the life of John Keats. Let's talk a little bit, or a lot of bit, about his writing. Given how short John Keats's life was, his output is incredible. He wrote a lot. And he was only seriously writing for six years. So that makes everything even more incredible. John Keats tends to be classified as the new school of romantics, along with poets like Lord Byron and Percy Shelley, which is kind of ironic given that John Keats didn't particularly like Percy Shelley because he felt like Percy Shelley was really patronizing towards him, re-John Keats's background. John Keats's poetry tended to be mocked and poorly reviewed in his lifetime, and most of these poor reviews tended to be because of John Keats's background. Reviewers and critics tended to see John Keats as poor and cockney and uneducated, even though, as we established, John Keats did have a pretty good, extremely well-rounded education. His poetry was extremely original. In his poetry, he questioned traditional forms and went against traditional forms, and he actually is most known for his odes, which were a completely original form when he was writing. A lot of his poetry explores ideas around aesthetic and art. One of his major ideas is the idea of the importance of sublime, specifically the sublime in art, which is slightly different than the other romantics who were more exploring the idea of sublime in nature. And one of the big ideas that Keats explores in his writing is this idea of negative capability and intensity. Basically, Keats's idea of negative capability is this idea that great writers can follow beauty and art even when this beauty causes confusion and causes them to lose themselves. Basically, it's this idea that artists can think beyond what we think they're capable of perceiving and thinking. You can always go one step further, and that's what makes art so great. So let's look at some of Keats's big, famous poems. And as always, this is just a loose overview. I'm not going that deep or that theoretical because then this podcast would be extremely long. And hey, if you're really curious, you can take a college class on that. 
Keats's first major poem is on first looking into Chapman's Homer. This is the poem that put Keats on the map. On first looking into Chapman's Homer is a sonnet. It explored the idea of an individual confronting a great genius or a great imagination, and it's this idea that shows up again and again in Keats's work. Then we have Endymion, which is his first long poem that he wrote throughout 1817. And surprise, surprise, Endymion tells the story of Endymion, which is this Greek myth about a prince who the moon falls in love with and puts into an internal sleep so that the prince can always be young and beautiful. In Endymion, Keats is really focusing on natural imagery. He's comparing art and poetry to the divine and exploring this idea of only being able to reach an ideal through the love of the earthly. Endymion is the first youth, is the first use of the myth in Keats's writing, and Keats is going to keep coming back to myth within his writing. It got terrible reviews when it came out because of Keats's educational background and the way he structured it, and because, in fairness, it's not that great of a poem. It can be a little redundant in places, and it's really overwritten at times. But in fairness, Keats was only 22 when he was writing it. A lot of my poems from when I was 22 also suck. Everyone's poems from when they're 22 are really bad, because 22-year-olds are terrible. Then we have the Odes, which are probably what John Keats is most famous for nowadays. The Odes were all written in 1819. They are made up of Ode on a Grecian Urn, Ode on Indolence, Ode on Melancholy, Ode to a Nightingale, and Ode on Psyche. We don't actually know the exact order in which they were written, but that doesn't really matter all that much. Keats's Odes are all about exploring, but not answering, questions about the balance between life, art, and beauty, and the relationship between art and the viewer. And I love the odes. They're just really beautifully written and have, in my opinion, some of the most beautiful imagery in the English language. Then there's Hyperion, which is also seen as one of Keats's greater works. It tells the story about the Titans after they lose their war against the Greek gods, and it explores the search for truth and understanding. Unlike a lot of Keats's poems, Hyperion is written in blank verse and was super inspired by Miltonian epics. Keats never finished Hyperion, although he did come back to it and reworked it in another unfinished piece, The Fall of Hyperion. And then lastly, we have some of Keats's longer works, such as Isabella and The Eve of St. Agnes, which were both about romance and the loss of optimism. In these pieces, we see Keats pushing away from the sentimentality, which can sometimes define some of his other works, and both were very much inspired by medieval themes, which we see inspiring so many of the British romantics. The Eve of St. Agnes was Keats's most successful poem within his lifetime, and that may be because it was a little bit more traditional than some of his other writings. So, those are a vague overview on the writing of John Keats. As always, I am going to close out 
this episode with a poem by John Keats. It was really hard to choose which poem to do. Keats has so many great ones. I was thinking of doing on looking at Chapman's Homer or Bright Star because those are some of his most famous ones, but I felt like listeners had probably read them before or heard them. Then I was like, oh, I should do O to a Grecian Urn or O to a Nightingale because those are like his two most famous odes, but they're really long and once again, probably have read them. And then I was like, why not do Ode on Melancholy? Because once again, it's one of his odes. Felt like it was right to do an ode. Also, I'm a sad girl. How do you do something to do with sadness? I also love Ode on Melancholy. I think it does a really great job of exploring Keats's idea of negative capability, and it does such a great job of exploring that concept of getting positive emotion from sadness in nature, and I just love that idea. So, without further ado, Ode on Melancholy, which Keats wrote in the spring of 1819. No, no, go not to leaf, neither twist wolf's bane, tight-rooted, for its poisonous wine, nor suffer thy pale's forehead to be kissed by nightshade, ruby grape of prosper peen, Make not your rosary of you berries, nor let the beetle, nor the death moth be your mournful psyche, nor the downy owl, a partner in your sorrow's mysteries, for shade to shade will come to drowsily and drown the wakeful anguish of the soul. But when the melancholy fit shall fall sudden from the heaven like a weeping cloud that fosters the drop-headed flowers all and hide the green hill in an April shroud, then glut thy sorrow on a morning rose or on the rainbow of the salt sand wave or on the wealth of globe peonies or if thy mistress some rich anger shows, imprison her soft hand and let her rave and feed deep, deep upon her peerless eyes. She dwells within beauty, beauty that must die, in joy whose hand is ever at his lips, bidding adieu, and aching pleasure nigh, turning to poison while the bee-mouth sips, I, in the very temple of delight, veiled melancholy, has her sovereign shrine, though seen of none save him, whose strenuous tongue can burst joy grape against his palate fine, his sources shall taste the sadness of her might, and be among her cloudy trophies hung. So that's Odon Melancholy, one of my favorite Keats's poems. Most of my research for this episode came from The Keats Brothers by Denise Giganti, Keats, A Literary Biography by Albert Hancock, and Keats, A Life by Stephen Coote. As always, if you have questions, comments, or concerns, you can email the podcast at sadgirlstudyguides at gmail.com. If you want to reach out to me on social media, you can do so on Twitter at sadgirlstudypod or on Instagram at sadgirlstudy. I'm really I want, like, a fun nickname for the listeners. I've been doing study guiders, but that sounds kind of weird. So if you can think of something better, please let me know, either on Instagram or on Twitter. I'm curious. Um, As always, if you want to financially support the podcast, I greatly appreciate that. You can do so at patreon.com forward slash sadgirlstudyguides.com. 
next time I'm going to be jumping back to the great old U.S. of A to explore the oh-so-fun time period between Andrew Jackson and Abraham Lincoln, starting with the presidency of Martin Van Buren. I think it really will be a doozy, and I cannot wait. Until then, the best way to help the podcast grow is to subscribe or tell a friend. We're always available on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, or Spotify. If there's another podcatcher you want to see be available on, let me know and I'll do my best to make that happen. And as always, let me know how I'm doing. Rate or review or else I'll be sad. Thanks.